Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening and God bless. Our passage today comes from Genesis 29 verses 19 to 35. Listen for what God is saying to you. Laban said, I'd rather give her to you than to another man. Stay with me. Jacob worked for Rachel for seven years, but it seemed like a few days because he loved her. Jacob said to Laban, the time has come. Give me my wife so that I may sleep with her. So Laban invited all the people of that place and prepared a banquet. However, in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he slept with her. Laban had given his servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her servant. In the morning, there she was, Leah. Jacob said to Laban, what have you done to me? Didn't I work for you to have Rachel? Why did you betray me? Laban said, where we live, we don't give the younger woman before the oldest. Complete the celebratory week with this woman. Then I will give you the other woman too for your work, if you work for me seven more years. So that is what Jacob did. He completed the celebratory week with this woman, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban had given his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her servant. Jacob slept with Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He worked for Laban seven more years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to have children. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben because she said, the Lord saw my harsh treatment and now my husband will love me. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a son. She said, the Lord heard that I was unloved, so he gave me this son too, and she named him Simeon. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a son. She said, now this time my husband will embrace me, since I have given birth to three sons for him. So she named him Levi. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a son. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing children. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of the scripture. Good morning, church. My name is Emily McGinley, and I have the great joy of serving as pastor here at UBC Hyde Park Woodlawn, and I'm so grateful to serve in ministry alongside many of the folks that you have seen up front here, but many people that you don't see, but who help us uh, do what we do and be who we are. Um, I'm grateful to worship with you. Please join me in a word of prayer. God, we are grateful to come together today and maybe incline our ear and our hearts to what it is that you might say to us today. And so I pray that it would be so, that you would clear away those things in our minds that distract us um, from hearing your voice, that you would help those uh, unfinished to-do lists to recede in our um, headspaces so that we can focus and be present in this moment. Speak through me, in spite of me, and maybe even a little because of me, so that your word might be heard, that we might be challenged, comforted, strengthened, and reminded that your love is at work within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was 15 years old, uh, I decided that I wanted to go to church. I had been reading the Bible regularly for about three or four months, and I was curious about what the deal was. I thought, people gather every Sunday to hear about this book. 
uh, to learn about it, and maybe, you know, it seems to make some kind of difference in their lives. I need to understand this better. So I headed down the street to the only church that was within a mile of where I lived, uh, a non-denominational evangelical Bible church, and I walked in dressed in my good jeans and found myself surrounded by all these families sitting together in their Sunday best. They all knew one another, knew how to move through the space, knew how to open their Bible to Ephesians chapter 13, knew what that meant. Uh, They knew the words to the songs. They smiled and greeted one another with ease. They were almost all white. It was a world completely foreign to me in so many ways. They were family units, like a generic doll set that you might buy at Toys R Us. Rest in peace. Contrast this with my home life experiences of relational alienation, emotional isolation, and occasional physical abuse. We ate together once a year during Thanksgiving, and it felt so strange, like we were play-acting what a normal family acted like was supposed to do, at least according to Donna Reed and Nick at night. (laughs) I sat there that first day in church looking around, and I thought to myself, I don't belong here with these picture-perfect Bible families. If only I'd known what real Bible families were like, I would have felt much better, right? And I mean, this goes pretty much for all the Bible families, but ooh right? I mean, this is a real muckety-muck, right? So after completely robbing his older brother Esau, Jacob runs away because Esau is like ready to break him, right? Jacob runs to his uncle Laban on his mother Rebekah's instructions to lay low until his brother's rage subsides and it's safe to come back. After giving him this direction, Rebecca turns to Jacob's father, Isaac, and says, like, I really loathe these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women, like the women of this land, why should I go on living? In which we realize that Rebecca is not so low-key racist. And so before he heads out, Isaac tells Jacob to find a wife among Laban's family. Now, he is no Targaryen. But, well, maybe Jacob's thinking, like, why not, right? A little cousin love never hurt anybody until it does, right? Jacob falls in love with his cousin Rachel, and after seven years of service, Jacob's ready to get his reward only to find out that it was a bait and switch. Somehow, don't ask me how, right? Jacob ended up betting Rachel's older sister Leah, which is to say that the return policy has been violated, right? And while it is a little gratifying to see Jacob meet his underhanded match in his uncle Laban, it's really not worth the cost of four women's lives. Did you realize that it was, in the end, four women? Let's look at this again. I won't fault you if you missed it. After all, this story is written from Jacob's perspective. First, we see this dealing between two men. I'll work for you if you pay me with her. And I'll pause here to say that if you've ever wondered whether or not true biblical marriage was anything other than property exchange and service to both patriarchy and capitalism, I hope this passage puts your wondering to rest. These men strike a handshake deal in which we all learn that handshakes are nothing and you must get everything in writing, right? (laughs) They make a deal and Leah is the first of much collateral damage, but there slipped in just behind her is Zilpah a servant gifted to Leah by her father. And so we see that there are hierarchies even within human indignities. Seven years later, the prized wife, Rachel, is finally handed over, Bilhah being part of that two-for-one deal. Leah knows she is a distant second, and she is desperate to obtain at least a sliver of Jacob's affection, handing over not one, not two, but three sons, eager, hopeful, pleading, realizing eventually that Jacob's love will never be hers. 
Her fourth son she dedicates not to her desperation, but to the realization that the love she will never get from her husband must be found in God. God has blessed her with sons even if she feels trapped in something of a cursed existence, and she has decided to stop looking for love in places where it will not come. But the story unfolds more in the next chapter, Genesis 30. We see Rachel burning up with so much jealousy and indignation that her sister Leah, the second-class wife who was so unmarriageable on the market that her father had to trick someone into marrying her, she gets all the sons, and Rachel remains childless. And what follows can only be described as a horrific marathon relay race of rape and childbirth, forced pregnancy and broken bodies. The womanist theologian Will Gaffney uses the term womb slave to describe the roles that Bilhah and Zilpah play as they are shuttled from Jacob's bed to the birthing stool and back again. Babies snatched from their hands and claimed as property of their mistresses. Did they even get a chance to repair their pelvic floors before the next baby tore through? Dr. Gaffney wonders how many women among the African diaspora experienced a fate all too similar to this. Leah gets in on the competition again, no longer for Jacob's love, but for Rachel's humiliation. Sister rivalry fueled by the unique kind of competition that patriarchy promotes, pitting women against one another in the most tragic of ways. And if you're paying attention, really, the only one winning here is Jacob. All this is overlaid and operating in a race and class construct that has you saying, will history ever stop repeating itself? When Rachel finally conceives, giving birth to Joseph, everyone breathes a collective sigh, and the last thing given birth is a traumatic truth. One might say that God is making good on that promise to Abraham to grant him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, but you have to wonder if it had to happen this way. What kind of family will this horror show become? Well, Scripture lays it out, at least in the immediate, a bloodbath of vengeance after Dinah, the youngest and only girl, unlawfully marries a man she loves because, after all, women do not decide who they marry. That's in Genesis 34. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers who are fed up with his smugness and the jealousy and probably the pain that their mothers experienced. Reuben, the eldest son, ends up sexually assaulting his auntie Bilhah. It is a tragic and nauseating timeline that has you thinking, maybe we wouldn't feel so bad if God reneged on that rainbow promise, right? Maybe we really need to wipe that slate clean and start all over again. But of course, if we started over again, it would just be a new verse with the same melodies. God knows this. And so instead of intervening with an apocalypse, God does something else. God shows up. God sees. God redeems. It isn't the happy ending that anyone is dreaming of, but it is something maybe even more precious than that. An enduring commitment that is strong enough to hold the sorrow of disappointment, the ugliness of abuse, the injustice of slavery, and the possibility of redemption anyway. This here is what makes the faith we claim, or try to claim, so special and so uniquely worth the effort when it would be so easy and, frankly, so justifiable for God to take one look at the messes we've caused and just walk away, God chooses to stay with us and walk with us through our struggles for dignity. And not only to walk with us, but to work with us, to help us imagine new ways of being with one another, to carve out spaces and practices that help us to thrive in spite of, 
in spite of the pain, in spite of the betrayal, in spite of the humiliations and abuse and all that is stacked against our sense of self-worth. This kind of commitment is nearly impossible to experience in any other relationship, really, outside of God. In many ways, our family of origin ought to be the place where we at least get a taste of that. But, well, as we heard from Lee, <laughs> and as far too many of us know, this is not always the case. Last night, I had the joy of attending the wedding of Danny Sanchez and Jason Gonzalez, and I was up late. But <laughs> if you were here last month, you'd recall Danny sharing, giving testimony about the stress of all that planning and how overlaid on that stress was the knowledge that this wedding would be happening without the support or presence of his parents. Danny's brother gave the toast, and while it was a fabulous toast, it was a bittersweet moment knowing that this was pretty much it when it came to representation of the family. And yet, the evening was full of joy and fun and dancing. It was full of joy and fun and dancing because there were so many pr people present who loved Jason and Danny. And probably the largest group of them all were folks from Urban Village Church. They were people whose names I knew, even though they attended another, the Wicker Park site. People who I knew were committed to our church and to one another and to what God could do through all of us together. They were chosen family. Folks whose stories could both break your heart and lift your spirit. Folks who I know are in the midst of struggles with faith and health, marriage and work and just life in general. People who, in spite of their pains and disappointment, in spite of betrayals or humiliations, have crawled out from beneath it all to show up for one another, to build something together, to be something with each other, to approximate the kind of love and hope and connection that God created us for. This is what Christian community is. Broken, but bound by grace. Imperfect, but committed to trying and trying again. When we become members at UVC, one of the things that we promise to do is show up for one another, whether it's through regularly attending worship, participating in service projects or justice actions, showing up to march in the pride parade together, or providing meals or care for one another when we need it. All of these things help us to build trust. Trust that the way things are is not the way things have to be, that we don't have to do this alone no matter what we've been told. Trust that fuels hope and faith, hope that God sees our pain, and faith that God will redeem it, transforming what was meant for death into a new way to live, a new way to be, with and for one another. I wonder what would have happened if Jacob saw what was going on and came to in the midst of all that madness between Rachel and Leah and said, hold up, this ain't right. Let's find another way to do this, to be family. We know that God's promise would have been just as sure. Can you imagine what that alternative timeline might have been like? But he didn't. And so God met Leah in her disappointment, and God met Rachel in her yearning. But even as God saw, God saw Leah and Rachel, God did not forget Bilhah and Zilpah. There's a reason why their names are mentioned these women, in spite of their statuses, their legacies, are actually woven into the stories of God's people, not just because they are servants of two notable women, no, because they are notable in and of themselves, for it was their sons, too, 
who are counted among the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. You can only imagine what Rebecca might have had to say about that. Life is usually not all that we would hope it to be or even all that it ought to be. And even so, God still chooses to show up and make of our circumstances things greater than we could imagine on our own. God commits to us in spite of us, because of us. And we commit to one another, building trust, sustaining hope, and walking together in faith that God will make something of us, through us, in spite of it all. Because after all, we are family. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you sit with us in the mess, the messes that we make, the messes that we get thrown into, the messes that just show up in spite of our best efforts. We give you thanks that you show up, that you commit to us, and that you call us to commit to one another, to show up for one another, to be a people of hope in a hopeless world, to be a people of joy in a world that is saturated in despair. We thank you that you invite us into that work, hopeful work, joyful work, work that is bound together by your love. Help us to be those people in spite of ourselves and because of ourselves so that this world might know just a little bit more hope and a little bit more joy. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who showed us what that could look like. In his name we pray, amen.